Good morning. It's great to be together again as God's people to sing together, to pray together, to hear from him, to hear from him through his word. So uh, excited about starting this new series of uh, looking at the life of Joseph from Genesis 37 to 50. And certainly I encourage you all to uh, spend time and read those chapters over the next uh, period of time to get a drift of the story, to get a sense of the story. Today we'll start with chapter 37. Next week Cyrus is going to teach us from chapter 39. If you still remember your math, you'll notice that we missed chapter 38. Uh, chapter 38, uh, if you read it, you'll wonder what it's doing there. Uh, it doesn't say anything about Joseph. Uh, but it's very integral to the life of Joseph and the story that God is telling us here. But we're going to come back to it later because it'll make more sense to us um, when we come back to it later as we see how the story unfolds. The overall uh, story of Genesis 37 to 50, I believe, is that God meant it for good in the midst of the storms of life. Uh, we often don't understand what God is doing and where he is. Uh, one of the main theme of this is that God meant it for good, and we're going to, going to see that as we go along. If you're new to the story of Joseph, I invite you to come along for a new adventure of discovery. And if you are very familiar with the story of Joseph, uh, ask God to open your heart and mind to see some new things, or perhaps some old things in a new way. And whatever your prior knowledge of the story, we need to be constantly asking ourselves, where is God? in our story. Where is God in this story? And we'll find that uh, there is much brokenness in this story. And so we're really going to ask, where is God when life is broken? Where is God when life is broken? So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Genesis 37. That should be one of the easiest assignments you've ever had. Genesis is the first book of the Bible and go up to Genesis chapter 37. We've heard verses 1 to 11 already read to us. We'll comment on those. We'll read the rest of the verses later. Um, uh, before we dig in, I would just like to pause for another moment of, of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity we have to be together this morning. Uh, we believe that this book that we hold in our hands is not a man-made object, something done by the imagination and creativity of human beings, but this is directly from your hand, from your mouth to us. These are the words that you have given to us that you would like us to hear, that we need to hear from you. And so I pray that you would please bring out of the treasure of your word something new and something old for us today. May your spirit be at work as the message is preached to reach into all of our hearts to change us into your image. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we're going to do is we see an introduction to Joseph's story. Uh, in verse 1, we see Jacob living in the land of his father's sojourning in the land of Canaan. Jacob is also known as Israel. They're living in the land of Canaan, which we now know as the land of Israel. And it was promised by God to one day be theirs, to belong to them permanently. But for now, the writer says that they are living as sojourners. They are living as immigrants, pilgrims, strangers, aliens. They are not permanent citizens. 
And to understand chapter 37, as well as this whole series in general, we must understand where the generations of Jacob, you'll notice in verse 2, the generations of Jacob fits into the whole biblical narrative. That generations of Jacob refers to that which comes from Jacob, that's with, that which arises out of Jacob. Genesis 3.15, after Adam and Eve sinned, God promises them that one day a descendant of Eve, a male descendant of Eve, would come who would destroy evil once and for all to be the savior of the whole world. Then as we come forward a little bit more in Genesis 12.13, God promises Abraham that his family would become a great nation and would be the one from whom that savior would come. And as the story of the Bible unfolds over many centuries, we will find that Jesus is the male offspring promised to Eve who will destroy evil. Jesus is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who is the Savior in whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. Here we read about Jacob, Abraham's grandson, born to Abraham's son, Isaac. It is through Jacob that God has promised to continue Abraham's family line. And our story today starts around 1900 B.C. So with that background, let's take a look at, the, at this family that God has chosen to bring forth his son, the Savior, Jesus Christ. What kind of family would you choose to bring forth the Savior if you were God? And remember, as we go through this story, we need to ask the question, where is God in this story? So the first thing we're going to see in verses 2 to 11 is we're going to look at the family dynamics, the family dynamics. We're going to look at how this family is functioning. Notice first in verse 2 that Joseph is 17 years of age. I think it's an interesting fact that the author includes here. It caused me to think back to my 18-year-old self 50 years ago this year when I committed to knowing Jesus Christ as my Savior, 18 years of age. The next thing I thought about was you, teens, sitting here in front of us. This story is for you as well. Just because you're young, because you're youth, doesn't mean that God has forgotten you. As a matter of fact, God is pleased to work in your lives to draw, him to, draw you to himself and use you throughout the course of your life. Of course, the story is for all of us as well. But I think it's significant that he points out that Joseph is 17 years of age. The recurring theme of this section, I don't know if you picked it up when Dave was reading it, the, the basic theme of this section, verses 1 to 11, is Joseph's 10 brothers hate him. Joseph's 10 brothers hate him. That's mentioned four times. The word hate is mentioned three, and the word jealousy is mentioned another time. They hate him. So we get an introduction to the family dynamics. Reason number one they hate him is seen in verse 3. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was the son of his old age. You see, Jacob had four wives, of which Rachel was his favorite. Rachel was not able to conceive, but after many years she finally did give birth to Joseph. Joseph is Jacob's 11th son of 12, 11th son, but he is Jacob's favorite son because he is the firstborn son of his favorite wife. 
Rachel also had Jacob's 12th and final son, Benjamin, but tragically died in childbirth while giving birth to Benjamin. So Joseph has a very, very, very special place in Jacob's heart. Jacob's favoritism toward Joseph was loudly displayed by this robe of many colors or this richly ornamented robe. And there are different translations of that, but the fact of the matter is this piece of clothing made him stand out above and beyond his brothers. It was something that was special that Jacob gave only to him. And we see in verse 4, but when his brothers saw their, their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully. Reason number two that his brothers hated him, we see in verse 5. Now Joseph had a dream, and we told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. The dream, if you were listening as Dave read, was Joseph had this dream that they were binding wheat sheaves in the field, and his wheat sheaf stood up, and his brother's wheat sheaf stood down and bowed to him. You can imagine how, they, how that went over with the brothers, uh, and it's clear. You don't have to imagine. The author tells us they hated him even more. Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams. Reason number three, he had another dream, very similar to the first one, but this time it wasn't just the brothers. It was mom and dad were also bowing down to him, and at this time... Jacob gets into the action. If you look in uh, verse 10, when he told it to his father, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And what was his brother's response? They were jealous of him. That word jealous carries the meaning of hostility and anger and resentment. But it's interesting to note his father kept the saying in mind. His father rebuked him. What is this dream? But he tucked it away and just said, you know, we're just going to put this back here and see what happens with this. Now, there's another event that probably didn't help Joseph's cause at all. It didn't make him popular with his brothers. We see that back in verse 2. He was along with his brothers keeping the sheep, and it says that he brought a bad report of his brothers to their father. Some people see that as Joseph being a tattletale. I don't think so. I think he was just reporting the facts. He said, well, how'd it go? Well, they did this, and they did this, and they did this, and you can just see Jacob. Well, there they go again. But it certainly didn't help Joseph's cause in the eyes of his brothers. So what's the conclusion of this section of this family dynamics? Well, they hated him. They hated him even more. They were jealous of him, and they couldn't speak peacefully to him. This is not a pleasant family to be living in. Trauma, loss, hatred, resentment, jealousy, bad behavior, favoritism, verbal abuse. So where is God in this story? Is this the family that God would choose to bring the Savior? Where is God when life is broken? Well, what we need to look at now is the fruit of hatred, the fruit of hatred. And that's going to take us into the remainder of the chapter. And what I'd like to do is I'd actually like to read these verses for us. It's a few minutes. It's about four minutes. But I think it's important for us to hear the story from God himself as we read it. 
So I'm going to read it. Feel free to follow along. Genesis 37, verses 12, and I'm going to read down to 35. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away. For I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and he took him, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew, drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments, put sackcloth on his loins, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. So we see his brothers hated him. We're going to look now, what is the fruit of hatred? Well, the first thing we'll look at is a very simple assignment. Jacob sends Joseph to Shechem, about 50 miles away, to check on and report back about his brothers who are pastoring the family's flock of sheep. After not being able to find them at Shechem, he is directed to Dothan, which is another 15 miles away, where they moved the flock. So Joseph goes to Dothan and finds them. Simple enough. And we have to say this does say something about Joseph's character. He did what his father asked him to do, and he went the extra mile, so to speak, to find them. 
But let's not fall into the trap of thinking that Joseph, Joseph's character is the focus of this account. It is not, as we will go along and see later. So we had a simple assignment, but now we have a perfect opportunity. A perfect opportunity. Verse 18, they saw him from afar, and before he came near, they conspired against him. Now, how do you think they saw him from afar and knew it was him? The robe, it stood out like a neon light, I'm sure, across the desert. There was no one else that it could have been who was wearing this robe. So they recognized him from afar, and they see their perfect chance to do something about this one that they hate so much. So they come up with what we now know as plan A. Kill him and be done with him in his dreams, and then say that a wild animal has eaten him. Well, Reuben, the oldest brother of the 12, he's actually Jacob's firstborn, who should be, in a sense, the favorite, the one who gets the inheritance. He argues against that, and I don't think it had anything to do with his love for Joseph. It appears that he's trying to win his father's favor. He is Jacob's firstborn son, but not Jacob's favorite. Jacob is very upset with Reuben because Reuben committed sexual immorality with Bilhah, one of Jacob's four wives. He could use some help to repair his relationship with his father right now. And if you read through these chapters at the end of Jacob's life when he's blessing his sons, you will see the pain of that event still come out in Jacob's blessing of his sons. So they strip him of his fancy robe and throw him into a pit and then sit down to eat, in verse 25. I mean, really, what else do you do when you're thinking about whether or not to kill your brother? You discuss it over lunch. This reveals a bit of, of where their hearts are. Take his robe, throw him in the pit, hey, let's have some lunch. What do you think we ought to do? Should we kill him, not kill him? Reuben says, no, I say yes. So they actually come up with plan B, because as they're sitting there, they look up and Judah sees a caravan of traders coming by, and he says, look, let's sell him to the traders. And I just think Judah's speech is dripping with sarcasm. He says, what profit is it, in verse 26, if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he's our brother, our own flesh. So they sell him for 20 shekels of silver, the going price for a slave. The going price for a slave. Better to make a profit from him alive than getting nothing for him dead. It's easy to read this story and think that Joseph was just a passive player here, cheerfully entrusting himself to God's plan. But that's not what we find later in Genesis 42, verse 21, as the brothers are reflecting back on this incident. He was very distressed, and he was begging them not to do this. Very distressed and begging them not to do this. He did nothing to deserve this. This passage does not give us any indication of wrongdoing on his part. That doesn't mean he was sinless. He's a sinner like the rest of us. But even so, there's nothing here that would justify him being killed or being sold as a slave. This was pure hatred. But that does not eliminate his deep pain of being abused and mistreated. 
just because some of us, we know the end of the story and how this works out, let us not minimize the deep pain and heartache and sorrow that Joseph is experiencing at this time. So there was a simple assignment, a perfect opportunity, but now they have a problem. How do you explain Joseph's disappearance? So now we see a cruel deception, a cruel deception. The plan is straightforward. They kill a sheep, take the blood, soak Joseph's robe in it, and they present that robe to Jacob in such a way there's really only one logical conclusion. Joseph must have been killed by a wild animal. And they do nothing to correct Jacob's wrong conclusion. Jacob is devastated. And notice the language in verse 32. This we found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe. They don't say, see, is this, is this our brother's robe? No, is this your son's robe? And Jacob says, it is my son's robe. He doesn't say it is your brother's robe. There's this us versus them speaking here. But Jacob is devastated. He just lost his favorite son to a cruel death by being eaten by a wild animal. And he's not able to find comfort. I remember thinking when I was a young man, wondering why Jacob just didn't get over this. Well, if you've ever lost a child or a grandchild, you know this kind of grief. It never really goes away. He expects to grieve deeply the rest of his life until he dies, which is the significance of his statement, I shall go down to Sheol. That was a Hebrew phrase for the place of the dead. I expect to die with this grief. But there are comforters, comforters in verse 35. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him. You're absolutely right. The same sons who made up this whole plan, who know this to be a lie, are now trying to comfort him in Joseph's death. They find themselves trying to comfort their father for something they know to be a lie and which they themselves made up. Truly a cruel deception. So how does this chapter end? This family is an extraordinarily dysfunctional family filled with verbal and physical abuse, hatred, jealousy, lying, cruelty, hypocrisy, hard-hearted disregard for even their own family members. Jacob is suffering overwhelming grief at the loss of his favorite son and is inconsolable. 17-year-old Joseph is sold into slavery into Egypt, likely wondering what happened to his life's dreams, which were from God. God had given him those dreams, and now, God, what happened? This story is dark and without any hope in sight. Jacob's family has done just about everything wrong, and nothing's going right. On the other hand, Joseph did nothing wrong, and still nothing is going right. As I was reflecting on this passage, 
I thought of family scrapbook or photo albums. This is one of the many that we have. Uh, don't get me started, I might spend a little time looking through it. But when you have a family photo album, and now they're digital these days, they're not uh, printed, do you put the bad news in here? No, everybody in here is smiling and happy, and these are good times. We don't usually put the unhappy people or the bad stories in our family albums and our scrapbooks. But that's not how God makes his family scrapbook. He's not afraid of revealing the truth about the lives of his people. So let's go back to our original question. Where is God in this story, in all of this brokenness, all this darkness? This is the question that really challenged me as I studied this passage. And I came to believe that the answer to that question is a very important key to not only understanding this passage, but how it applies to our lives. If you've been looking for him, that is God, you will find that God's name is not mentioned anywhere in this chapter. In the midst of their deepest pain and heartache, it seems that God is nowhere to be found. Jacob and Joseph and we could rightly ask, God, where are you? And it probably would be more like, God, where are you? Have you ever been there? And as I reflected on that, to get an answer to that question, we have to look elsewhere. And I invite you to turn back to Genesis 28. Genesis 28. God, where are you? The context of this is that Jacob is running away from his brother Esau, who was looking to kill Jacob. And we won't go into why that's happening, but Jacob is running away from his brother Esau. God meets him in the wilderness on that journey, and this is what God says to him, starting in verse 13 of chapter 28. He says, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you till I have done what I have promised you. Look at that verse 15 again. I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you till I have done what I have promised you. For I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. I will not leave you. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Let that sink in deeply. Why is this such a big deal? Well, what does Jacob have? What does Joseph have when everything is going wrong and God is nowhere to be found? They have God's promise. I will not leave you. 
until I have done what I have promised you. Which means they have God's presence. God is with them right now in the midst of this darkness. They can't see him. They don't understand what he's doing. They don't know why things are happening. But they have God's presence with them. A promise is only as good as the one making the promise, right? If I make a promise to you, it may or may not happen. Not because I don't want it to, but because I may have promised something I shouldn't have promised that's beyond my control. Or circumstances that are truly beyond my control may have conspired against me fulfilling the promise. I make a promise to you, it may or may not happen. God makes a promise to you, there's no way it's not going to happen. There is no way it's not going to happen. Is he really God? Well, if he's not God, then there's no hope for anything good. But if he is, and he is, it doesn't take away the pain in the moment, but there is every reason to be hopeful that all is going to end well, because God is with us. I will never leave you until I have fulfilled all that I have promised to you. God's promise means that he is right there with them in the midst of all this sin and suffering. Even though they can't see him, even though it seems like he has abandoned them, even though their circumstances are screaming to them that God is absent and nowhere to be found. It's not true. He is there with them because he promised, I will never leave you until I have fulfilled all that I have promised you. God loves this family and has chosen them as his own. He is committed to them and will not abandon them, will not leave them until he fulfills all he has promised. Well, what about you and me? Is your life and the life of your family a mess because of all the wrong decisions you and members of your family have made? Or perhaps your life is a mess through no fault of your own but because of the wrong actions of others? Are there times you look around, you look up, and you ask God, where are you? Anybody been there? God, where are you? There will be times in your journey through life, maybe even right now, that your life circumstances yell loudly that God is absent. God has forgotten you. God is ignoring you. And it's during those times that you have done everything wrong and nothing's going right. And it's during those times when you've done everything right and still everything is going wrong. During those times of darkness and hopelessness when you can't see God and you cry out, God, where are you? Remember, God loves you and your family. God loves you and your family. And if you're God's child by faith in Jesus, you can cling to the promise he made in Hebrews 13. For God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Or remind yourself of Jesus' words to his followers before he went back to heaven. Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And when God makes a promise, it's as good as done. When God makes a promise, it's good as done. Well, what are the consequences to us if we forget that God is with us? What if we forget that God is with us? We came across this quote recently, and I'm sorry, I don't know the source. 
But it says, if I believe God is with me only when he's doing great things for me, I'm not really serving or trusting or loving him. I'm only using him. If I believe God is with me only when he's doing great things for me, I'm not really serving or trusting or loving him. I'm really only using him. If you believe that God has abandoned you when life is not going well and that he's let you down, there will be anger, anxiety, fear, worry, disappointment, resentment, discouragement, paralysis, jealousy of others perhaps as you see their lives going better than yours. But God's promise means that he is right there with you in those dark times even though you can't see him even though you don't understand what he's doing and why he's doing it, he has promised to never leave you or forsake you until he has fulfilled all that he has promised. And when I thought about that, all right, so his promise is going to end? No, he promised to be with us for eternity. (laughs) So it's an eternal promise. I will never leave you until I've fulfilled all that I have promised you. Before we close, we need to look at this passage from one other very important angle. Joseph's story contains shadows of something more significant. Do you know of anyone else in the Bible who was the favorite son of the father, but who humbled himself and became a servant, sent to rescue his people, to whom one day every knee would bow, but who was hated and despised and slandered by those who should have loved him? those he came to rescue. One who said and did things that were not understood by his parents, but his mother nevertheless hid those things in her heart. One who was sold for the price of a slave, stripped of his clothing, and in his case, actually put to death. One who left the father's house to live in a foreign land so that those he loved could be preserved to live in the land of promise forever. It's amazing to think about. We will see that Joseph is eventually exalted and becomes a savior, a rescuer of his family and of all the world around him. But Joseph's life points us ahead 1,900 years later to the more perfect savior, Jesus Christ himself, who humbled himself by entering our world and submitting to death for our sake that we might have new life now and for eternity. So in closing, I'd like to point out now that your relationship to God depends on your relationship to Jesus. If you have not trusted Jesus as your Savior, if you have not accepted for yourself that Jesus died on the cross for your sins, that he was raised again from the dead and is coming again, then you stand outside God's promise to never leave you or forsake you. And I invite you, even urge you, to put your faith in him today. But if you have trusted Jesus as your Savior, then you can have full assurance that no matter what bad things you do or have done, no matter what others do to you, no matter how dark life gets, you are in a full relationship with God as your Father, the God who will never leave you, no matter how distant he may seem to you at any given time. This is not merely a story about Joseph and his family, but is a story about a great savior who works in mysterious ways to rescue his people and accomplish his great purposes, working in the deep, dark, quiet places of the sinful, broken human heart 
and sinful, broken families. Mike Cosper, in his series, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill and Christianity Today, said it this way, this is a story about the mystery of God working in broken places. This is a story about a great Savior who will never, ever leave you. You see, Joseph's story is not over. Neither is yours. Neither is mine. Notice verse 36 of chapter 37. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Come back next week for the follow-up of what happens with that. Because we need to keep watching over time to see God at work. If we look at our lives in a particular snapshot, we may not see God's hand. We need to watch God at work over a period of time. We'll see it in Joseph's life, in his family's life. We will see it in our lives. In the meantime, when we look at the difficult circumstances of our life and cry out, God, where are you? We can remind ourselves that no matter how confusing, surprising, mysterious, or painful our life gets, God has said over and over and over to us that I will never leave you until I have done what I have promised you. I will never leave you until I have done what I promised you. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would allow the significant truths of this dark chapter in the life of Jacob's family to sink deeply into our hearts that we may take hope not in our circumstances, not in our ability to see what's coming or understand what's coming, but simply in your promise to never leave us until you have done what you have promised. That when we can't see you, we can't hear you, we can't detect your work in our lives, that we can rest confident that you will never leave us, that you're right there with us by our side to accomplish your purposes. And I pray that you would enable us to lean into you and to trust you during those times. Help us not to use you. Help us not to give thanks to you when things are going well or only going well, but to trust you when things are not going well, knowing that you are there with us. Help us, Father, to see that the blessings that you bring into our lives are often hidden. They do not look like blessings to us. They are painful. They are hurtful. They are difficult. They are challenging. But in the end, you will bring the fruit of righteousness and the fruit of conforming us to your image into our lives. And so I pray that we would learn to trust you and rest in you in this. In Jesus' name, amen.